Let us pray. Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the holy, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are in a continuing study of John's gospel, and we are in John chapter 10 today. So if you have your Bibles, and I encourage you, as always, to bring your Bibles. Bill is over there right now taking roll to see who is doing that and who is not. And your names will be called out at the annual meeting this year. So... <laughs> Those who did not will be called out. We'll separate the sheep from the goats, so to speak. Well, we are in John chapter 10, and we're going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 10. We started looking at this section of John's gospel last week. I want to come back and take a closer look at one verse in particular, verse 10. So we read these words, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door... But climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I want to come back to that verse 10, the idea of the abundant life, because this is one of the great promises of the Christian faith. It is the promise that Jesus made to his disciples. He said that I've come that you might have life, but not just have life, that you might have a full life, that you might have an abundant life. But the question arises, what does that mean? What does it really mean to have an abundant life? Or some translations say life to the full. Well, sometimes it's helpful in trying to understand something to say first, before you say what it is, explain what it is not. Sometimes that can be very clarifying. And that's how I want to begin by looking at this passage. I think it's important that we understand what abundant life is because it is a promise for us as Christians. But in order to understand that fully, we need to understand, we need to sort of clear away some of the wreckage, and we need to be very clear as to what abundant life is not. And I think where the proper place to begin is making it very clear that when we're talking about abundant life or life to the full, as Christians, we do not mean that that means necessarily a long life. I want to start there because I think that's what many people assume. Uh, there is a kind of gospel out there in the world and in the church today. It's a prosperity gospel. 
that says that if you give your life over to Jesus Christ, I'm just going to call out Joel Osteen as an example of this. If you just believe in Jesus Christ, everything in your life is going to be wonderful. That God wants you to be happy and healthy. And I think we need to understand that that is not necessarily the case. Now there are passages, it is true in the scriptures, particularly in Exodus chapter 20 and in Ephesians where we are told that we are to be obedient to our parents, honor our parents, for example, so that it may go with us well in the land and that we may live to a ripe old age. But while that is certainly something that we need to take to consideration, that is not meant to be a blanket statement about you do this, it's a formula, you do this, and the result will automatically be that. There are just too many examples throughout the history of the Christian church of dedicated, faithful believers who, quite frankly, did not have long lives. And I just want to go through some of these up here on the screen. Now, some of these people you'll be familiar with. Some of them you will not be familiar with. But perhaps this will encourage you to go and read more about them because every single one of them is an extraordinary figure. The first example that I want to give you of somebody who was a devout Christian, a faithful Christian, but who did not live a long life by any stretch of the imagination is Perpetua. Perpetua and her companions. She has a special feast day in the life of the church. Perpetua and her companions were martyrs during one of the early persecutions in the history of the church. She died in the year 203 AD. We're not exactly sure when she was born. We have an idea. Her age was about 22 at the time of her death. Perpetua came from a wealthy family. Her father was a very influential Roman citizen. But she became a Christian at a young age. Now, her father was not happy about this. Uh, her mother was distressed about this. And they pleaded with Perpetua to abandon her Christian faith because they knew uh, that persecution was coming against the church. And they didn't want their daughter, even though her father was very powerful and very influential, there was very little that he could do once this became a blanket persecution. And so they pleaded with their daughter to abandon her Christian faith. The story goes that Perpetua, standing in her father's house, pointed to a, an expensive vase that was standing there on a table. And she said, Father, what is that? And he said, it is a vase. And she said, Father, can it be anything else than a vase? And he said, no. And she said, well, neither can I be anything else but a Christian, for that is what I am. Well, she was eventually arrested, she and several companions, young women, and they were taken into the arena to be sport for the crowds and fodder for the animals. And the story goes that the first animal that was let loose was a great bull. And the bull came charging at this small huddle of women, and the first person that he attacked was Perpetua. She was thrown into the air, and she landed on her back several feet away from the bull. She immediately struggled to her feet. She was already bleeding, but she straightened her tunic and the belt around her waist, and she began to pray, and she began to sing hymns. The next animal that they let loose into the arena was a lion, and the lion came and attacked and killed all of Perpetua, killed Perpetua and all of her companions. She died at the age of 22. So much for the long life. 
but it's not just Perpetua, a little bit closer to home, closer to our time period, is Augustus Toplady. He was a writer of great hymns. Perhaps you know one of them. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. It's one of the most popular Christian hymns. He was a minister in the Church of England. He died in 1778 at the ripe old age of 38. Robert Murray McChain, some of you may know that name, some of you may not. If you come from a Presbyterian background, you may know that name. He was a Scottish minister, Robert Murray McChain, and he died in 1843. He has written a number of wonderful commentaries, a number of wonderful books. He had a great saying. He said, it is not so much great talents that, God's bless, that God blesses as it is great likeness to Jesus Christ. He said, a godly minister is a mighty weapon in the hands of God. He died at the age of 29. He sparked a revival in the church in Scotland at the ripe old age of 29. Oswald Chambers. Now, I know you know that name. That is another Scotsman. Uh, he died in 1917, that is, in the 20th century in which most of us were born. You're familiar with his devotional. It's probably the most popular devotion that is out there and the most widely read, my utmost for his highest. He died at the age of 43, a little bit older than some of the others, but still, when you hear a 43-year-old has died, most of the people in this room say, oh, what a young man that was, or a young woman at the age of 43. How many of you still think that 43 is young? Yeah, absolutely, I thought so. William Borden is one of my favorites. William Borden was the heir to the Borden family fortune. I'm sure you've heard of Borden Milk, and he was a great family in Chicago. They were very wealthy, powerful people. And William Borden was the heir to that family fortune. His father had great plans for him, sent him off to Yale University, where he graduated at the top of his class, Phi Beta Kappa. His father intended him to become a lawyer and then eventually take, in, take over the family business. But while he was at Yale, of all places, William Borden heard the gospel and he became converted to the Christian faith. He got his degree, but he decided not to go into the family business. Instead, he decided that he was going to be a missionary to China. His father was very upset about this. Again, they had great plans for their son, great dreams for their sons. And William in particular, who was really the most promising of all. His father said to him, you don't want to become a missionary. Why would you want to do that? What difference are you going to make? You're going to regret this for the rest of your life. But William Borden did. He gave up the family fortune and he became a missionary to China. He was there for only about a year before he contracted a very serious illness and he died. He died at the tender age of 25. When his body was recovered, they found underneath the pillow on the bed in which he died these words, tell my parents, no reserve, no retreat, and no regrets. The age of 25. I know the next one you're all familiar with, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote the wonderful book, The Cost of Discipleship. Perhaps some of you have seen movies about him because movies have been made or read the biography by Eric Metaxas on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, an extraordinary individual. The last man, incidentally, executed by the order of Adolf Hitler himself. 
Now you think about all the enemies that Adolf Hitler had, and he had plenty of them, many within his own army. And yet the man that he feared the most was a German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. What many people don't realize is Bonhoeffer was this great theologian, was this great professor of theology, was really only 39. 39 years old. We oftentimes think somebody who has accomplished so much must have at least been in their 50s or in their 60s. That's when they would peak. But no, he died at the age of 39 in 1945. Another one who died in 1945, you're probably familiar with, is Eric Little. You know of Eric Little because he was the man who led Britain to its victory in the Olympic Games in Paris in 1928. And he is the star or the featured individual in the movie that won the Academy Award in 1980, Chariots of Fire. That's who Eric Little is. Eric Little had a great athletic career ahead of him, but like William Borden, he had a heart for the people in China. He became a missionary to China, and he died in occupied China in 1945, giving up a very promising career at the age of 39, or 43, excuse me. I know you're familiar with Jim Elliott because many of you are familiar with his wife, Elizabeth Elliott. Jim Elliott was a graduate of Wheaton College. He was a young man who was completely sold out for Jesus Christ. Uh, many people thought that he was wasting his life, too, when he became a missionary. He said, it is no loss, it is no foolish mistake to give away what you cannot keep in order to gain what you cannot lose. And he became a missionary to Indians, and he ultimately was killed, martyred by them in 1956 at the age of 29. Incidentally, his wife and the wife of the other men that died with him would eventually go back and minister to the very people and bring them to faith who had killed their husbands. He died at the age of 29. Keith Green, those of you who are familiar with renewal music, was a great Christian artist. He died in a plane crash at the age of 28. And finally, when you think about people dying at an old age, you mustn't forget the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who died at the age of 33, we have a hymn, there is a green hill far away outside the city wall where the young prince of glory died. He died to save us all. And indeed, he was the young prince of glory. Jesus died at the age of 33. And if Jesus died as a young man, we shouldn't assume that the abundant life means that we're going to have a long life. Now, some of you have had a long life and praise the Lord for that and thank him for it. But that is no guarantee. When Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly, that's not necessarily what he means. None of us knows. We are simply to make the most of the time that we have. So the abundant life is not necessarily a long life. Nor is it the sorrow-free life. We often think that if I become a follower of Jesus Christ, everything is going to be better. All of my problems are going to dissipate. All of my broken relationships are automatically going to be restored. Well, let me just say, you don't find anything like that anywhere in the scriptures. There's just not any indicator that that is going to be the case in our lives. In fact, it's often just the opposite. Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, he must first deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, you understand that when Jesus said, take up your cross, that doesn't really strike us in the way that it would have struck that first century audience. 
But Peter and Andrew and James and John and the rest, they all knew exactly what that meant. The cross was a symbol of capital punishment. Replace cross with electric chair or lethal syringe. Anybody who would seek to follow me must first take up his electric chair or his lethal syringe and follow me because that was an invitation to come and die. That's what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 24, the Lord said to his disciples, you will be brought before kings and governors, and many of you will be persecuted, and some of you will be put to death. Indeed, every single one of the disciples, every single one of them, with the exception of John, died a martyr's death. And while John died an old man, he spent the greater part of his life in exile, living abandoned away from those he loved. John chapter 16, Jesus said to his followers, in this life you will have tribulation. He didn't say you may have it. It's likely you're going to have it. He was emphatic. You will have it. Sooner or later, trouble's going to come into your life. You've heard me say this before. Every single one of us is in one of three places. We're either in a storm, we've just come out of a storm, or we're heading into a storm. But nobody, nobody escapes the storms of life. Abundant life is not a guarantee of a sorrow-free life. Turn, if you will, to 2 Corinthians for just a moment, because here we have an example of one of the greatest ambassadors for Christ the world has ever known. In fact, the one man who, next to the Lord Jesus Christ, did more than any other to advance the cause of the gospel. And that, of course, is the Apostle Paul. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul recounts some of the things that he had endured for the sake of Christ. Beginning at verse 24, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. I've been in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all of this, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul doesn't mention the one thing that terrifies me more than anything else on one of those occasions when he was shipwrecked on the Isle of Malta, he was bit by a venomous snake. All these other things pale in comparison to that as far as I'm concerned. I hate snakes. That is hardly what you would call a sorrow-free life. Now, Paul would have had a very promising career in Judaism had he had not followed Jesus Christ. He was a Roman citizen, so he had protection there, opportunities that other people would not have had. In addition to that, of course, he had been trained in a very fine religious education and environment under Gamaliel, the foremost rabbi of his time. Paul could have gone far, but he encountered Jesus Christ, and that changed his life. And in following Jesus Christ, what happened was that Paul's life became forfeit. In fact, Jesus made it very clear at the time of his conversion. Remember that he sent a man named Ananias to lay his hands on Paul, and Ananias said, oh, wait a minute, I know this guy, I know who he is. You can't use him. And the Lord said, you go. I will show him how much he must suffer 
for my name's sake. This is one of the odd things about the Christian life. It's in losing our life that we actually save it. And it's in saving our lives physically that we actually lose them. So the abundant life is not a guarantee of a long life. I think that's important that we remember that. I've got a family friend who's in his 80s, and he really doesn't believe in anything. I'm sad to say. I don't know if he's an atheist or an agnostic or what he is, but he says that he doesn't believe in God. And yet, let me tell you something. He is a health freak in his 80s. He went to the doctor this past week, and his blood pressure was slightly elevated, and he came home absolutely paranoid as a consequence. He went out and walked five miles. I thought to myself, what in the world is going on there? And it occurred to me, he probably did that because if you don't believe in the life to come, then this life is all there is. You better make the most of it. That's a pretty sad commentary, isn't it? So a sorrow-free life, a long life, these are not guarantees. Neither is a sickness-free life. Again, there is this prosperity gospel out there that says, if you follow Jesus Christ, all of your problems are going to be. God wants you to be healthy. And there's no doubt about the fact that Jesus went around healing people. But we have to remember that even those that Jesus healed, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, the lepers, they got sick again. Even the people that he raised, the widow of Nain's son, Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, they all died again. The Christian life is no guarantee that you're going to live a sickness-free life. Now, that does not mean, not take my words and misunderstand what I'm saying, that does not mean that we shouldn't take care of ourselves. Our bodies are a gift from the Lord. They are the temples of the Holy Spirit. We should care for our bodies. But there's no guarantee that even if you do that, I mean, genes do play a part in this. We recognize that. There are some people who have lived healthy lives. They've done all the right things, checked all the boxes, never smoked, never drank, ate all the right things, and still they contract heart disease or they contract cancer or whatever it is. The Apostle Paul did not have a sickness-free life. You know that he complained about a thorn in the flesh that he had. A thorn in the flesh means a physical ailment. Now, we don't know what that was. Some people think it had something to do with Paul's eyesight. Perhaps he was suffering from macular degeneration because in some of his letters he talks about writing with large letters. We don't know exactly what it was, but whatever it was, Paul considered it to be a hindrance to his mission and his ministry. And he begged God to remove it three times. And we're told that God said, no, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Think of some of these other Christians down through the centuries who've done extraordinary things. Martin Luther, my illustrious ancestor, if you will. <laughs> Martin Luther, of course, was the man who sparked the Protestant Reformation, which ultimately became a revolution that fled, spread through all of Europe and eventually beyond Europe to distant shores. He suffered from all sorts of health ailments, constantly complaining about his issues. He had angina, Meniere's disease, which you know has something to do with the ears, and it caused him to have vertigo. He was oftentimes unbalanced. He had problems with his gastrointestinal tract. He had arthritis. He suffered from 
anemia. It was one thing after another. And of course, this was the 16th century, so medicine was very limited. It wasn't as though they could give you a pill for any of these things. Or think about John Calvin, who was that second generation of reformers. He suffered from chronic migraines, pleurisy, gout, chronic kidney stones, an enlarged spleen, and tuberculosis. One would be bad enough. Charles Spurgeon. Now, I know you've heard that name quoted liberally here at St. Philip's. The greatest preacher, perhaps, of the 19th century in Britain. Thousands of people would come to hear Spurgeon on a Sunday, including Benjamin Disraeli, who was the prime minister of Great Britain and Jewish. But he was absolutely captivated by sermons by Charles Spurgeon. He suffered from Bright's disease, which I'm told is an illness of the kidneys. He had neuritis, problems with his nerves. He had gout, and he suffered from rheumatism and recurring depression. He would sometimes preach, and at the end of his sermon would be so exhausted that he literally, literally had to be carried out of the pulpit. How about Fanny Crosby? who wrote, oh, so many wonderful hymns like, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. She was blind from the age of six weeks. She got an illness, uh, and it blinded her, and there was nothing that the doctors of the time could do about it. And I think in our own time of Tim Keller, who's had a profound impact on all of New York City, in fact, when he died as the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, the Roman Catholic Diocese of New York offered that his funeral be held at St. Patrick's Catholic Cathedral, a Presbyterian minister being buried out of St. Patrick's Cathedral in order to accommodate the crowds of thousands that came. Tim Keller did not have a sickness-free life. He suffered from different cancers, from thyroid cancer, and ultimately he would die as a result of pancreatic cancer. Now, these were all great Christians. They were all people who made a profound impact on the world, but they did not have an easy life when it came to their physical health. So the abundant life is no guarantee of a long life, a sorrow-free life, or a sickness-free life. You need to understand that. So now you're wondering, well, then what is it? <laughs> what exactly is the abundant life? Life. Well, it's interesting that our word abundant comes from two Latin words which mean to rise in waves or to overflow. And our English translation is based upon the Latin. But the actual Greek word perissos means a surplus, a surplus. It's the same idea that you have in the story of Jesus feeding the multitude, the 5,000. We're told that when everybody was satisfied and fed, they picked up 12 baskets full of the leftovers, 12 baskets full of surplus. When Jesus talks about coming to have life and having an abundant life, what he means, it's a life in which everything spiritually that we need is provided for us. There will be a surplus we will want for nothing. So let's just sort of spell that out. We understand what the abundant life is not. What is the abundant life then? Well, the abundant life is this. It is to be made alive. 
That seems obvious, but it's not always obvious. It is to be made spiritually alive because the scriptures are clear. You and I, while physically alive, we're not spiritually alive. We are not attuned to the things of God. If you're a Christian and if you become a Christian later in life, you can understand this. You can understand that at one point in your life there were things that you just didn't understand. It made no sense to you. It's always a thrill to me to see people who go through the confirmation class, the foundations class, and every time we have confirmation every year, it's an amazing thing for me to see. Yes, we have 40, 45, 50 youth who go through, but we have at least that many adults, sometimes more. And the number of adults who've said to me, I confess to you, I was confirmed as a kid, but none of that meant anything to me. It was sort of a rite of passage. And at some point in my life, all of a sudden, the light bulb went on, and I began to understand these things. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Now I understand. How many of you can relate to that story in your own lives? Many of you. That is to say, you were made alive. Paul says we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins in which we used to live. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive even when we were dead. So to have the abundant life means, first of all, to be made alive, to be enlightened, to be born again. The abundant life also means the peace-filled life. Jesus in John chapter 14 in that section of the fourth gospel which is often referred to as the farewell discourse because it contains some of the final words that Jesus spoke to his disciples prior to his crucifixion. In fact, John 14 and the words in it which we all love those words were spoken on the very last night that Jesus spent with his disciples. The night of the last supper it was the night of his arrest in the garden of Gethsemane when he spoke these words and what he said to his disciples is he said this he said my peace I give to you not as the world gives it, do I give it to you. And if you think about it, that's true. If you're a Christian, you have that peace which passes human understanding, don't you? That peace which the world cannot understand or comprehend. Other people can't understand it. But Jesus gives it to his followers. Paul describes this peace what it looks like in Romans chapter 8. In that very familiar section, we oftentimes read it at funerals, and it's appropriate that we should. But Paul asks this question. It's a rhetorical question. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword... He goes on, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you know that, if that is a truth that has sunk down deep in your heart, that nothing, nothing in all of creation... And that includes you. I, I always point that out. That includes you. You know, we might think to ourselves, well, nothing out there in the world can separate me, but I can really mess things up. Once you are in Christ Jesus, you can never lose that salvation. Because it is the work of God from stem to stern, from start to finish, from first to last. 
And if you know that, that nothing is ever, not even death itself, is going to separate you from the love of God, boy, that can bring you peace. And it's peace the likes of which the world cannot even comprehend. The abundant life is the joyful life. Jesus brought joy to his disciples, and he promised them joy. Now, if you were here on Christmas Eve, you heard me talk about this, joy as distinct from happiness. And there is a big difference between the two, and you need to understand that. The world promises us happiness. We talk about happiness all the time. My goodness, it's ingrained in our founding documents. We are endowed by our creator with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We have a right to be happy. Well, how's that working out for you? Are you always happy? See, the problem with happiness is that it cannot coexist with sorrow and disappointment. I described it on Christmas Eve as this balancing act, like one of those old-fashioned balanced scales that you used to see in a pharmacy or a candy store. What happens when the world weighs you down? You've got to apply some sort of a counterbalance to bring you back up. But sooner or later, you get to the point where you discover that there are some sorrows, some heartbreaks, that nothing in this world can bring you back to a balanced position. The example that I used on that occasion was some friends of ours who this past summer lost their 25-year-old son in a tragic accident. And there's nothing that this world can afford, no trip around the world, no lottery windfall, nothing whatsoever that will ever be able to assuage the pain, the misery that they have in their lives. But that's what the world offers us, happiness. It is an emotion that we experience and it is completely dependent upon our circumstances. But Jesus offers us something else. He offers us joy. This is a great example. He talks about a woman in childbirth. And he talks about the fact that she is in great pain. But the moment that she is delivered, whatever pain she's experiencing, whatever sorrow she's experiencing as a result of that birth, it immediately is overwhelmed by joy. You can have joy even when your world is falling apart. Doesn't mean you'll be happy. Doesn't mean you won't have sorrow. But joy can coexist with sorrow. It is that calm assurance that in the end, all will be well. That's what the Christian has that the world does not have. Here's something else the abundant life entails. It is a confident life. It is the confident life. It is the assurance that God is with you. And because he is, you can do all things through him who strengthens you. You need not fear the world you can be confident. You know, it's really interesting when you think about Martin Luther and his life. Uh, Luther was uh, a great theologian. He was a professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg. But Luther was unknown. He was sort of in a backwater of the empire at that time. And um, he really hadn't accomplished much. And that's because he lived in fear of God. He believed that his sins were so great that there was no way that God could ever forgive him. But it was when he discovered the doctrine of justification, or I should say rediscovered the doctrine of justification, because it's always there in Scripture. But when he discovered that you and I come into a right standing with God, not on the basis of anything we do, but on the basis of trust in what Christ has done on our behalf, all of a sudden, 
He was liberated. He was no longer trying to earn God's love. Because he had God's love, he could live a confident and bold life. And that's when he began to make a difference. You can live a confident life because you know that your identity... Let's be honest, we live in this world in which we're always trying to put up a front, aren't we? We want people to see us in a particular way. Our identity is oftentimes wound up or bound up in our, our, our jobs or our careers or our family name or our reputation, whatever it may be. But when you suddenly discover that all of that doesn't matter anymore, what really matters is that you are a child of God, loved eternally, accepted, forgiven, that in your life there is no condemnation, no separation, and no defeat. When you realize that, let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, that's liberating. You can begin to live a confident life. And it's a life that many people don't. They spend their whole lives trying desperately, desperately to put up a face. So the abundant life is to be made alive. It is a peace-filled life. It is a joyful life. It is a confident life. And finally, it is eternal life. It is life forever with Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. C.S. Lewis has a great argument. It's called an argument from desire. He said this is one of the great proofs that we know that there is a God and that we were created for eternity, that this life is not all there is. He points out that animals are not troubled by the prospect of their own death. They're sort of resigned to it. Dogs don't mourn the fact that they're getting old. But humans do. We rail against death. We fight against death. Like my friend who's in his 80s and elevated blood pressure, and he goes out and walks five miles, and he's got 40 jars of vitamins that he takes on a daily basis. I'm not lying to you. It looks like a pharmacy counter in there. Because he's afraid of dying. But you see, we don't have to be afraid to die. Because death for the Christian is but a portal to the life Elysium. And that is the promise that we have. And we have that promise because Jesus Christ himself has died and has risen. And he's gone before. The abundant life is a peace-filled life, a joyful life, a confident life, an eternal life. Here's my question. Is that your life? Because let me be very clear, if that is not your life this morning, then you're not living. You're merely existing. And that's not what God wants for you. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and that you may have abundant, full life, life overflowing. Brothers and sisters, that's what God wants for you this morning. Doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect. Doesn't mean you're going to live to be 102. But it does mean that you can have joy, confidence, and hope unspeakable no matter what the world throws your way. If you don't know that life, then come to Jesus Christ because he is that life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life.
and no one comes to the Father but by me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this promise of abundant life that is ours in Christ Jesus. The world is filled with sorrows and disappointments, things that would rob us of our happiness, but they cannot rob us of our joy. We can live confident lives. We can make a difference when we realize that our identity is not bound up in the neighborhood that we live in or the car that we drive or the name that we bear, that our confidence can be found in the fact that we have been forgiven, accepted, and we are loved eternally. Grant us this abundant life, this eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.